Good morning and welcome to the Sunday after Easter. If you would like an outline and some discussion study questions to follow along with this sermon, you can find those either in the YouTube link or the Facebook link or at www.chawilaefree.org. Let's open in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for all that you are doing. We thank you for how much that you care for us and provide for us, even in ways we cannot see. And now, Lord, open our hearts to your word. Open our hearts to those around us who are seeking after you in this time of difficulty. And Lord, I pray that each of us can look into your word and not come away with just a few ideas, but we come away with changed hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to be going back to Jonah that we started in our church back in March. And so I'd like to pick up in Jonah chapter 1, verse 7, and you would turn in your Bibles to that while I tell you a little bit about a class of third graders. These third graders had been asked by their teacher to complete some well-known proverbs. And just to show you how children so often think differently about life than adults, they had some very interesting answers to these Proverbs. So something we would know the answer to, here's what they said. Better safe than, punch a sixth grader, strike while the bug is close. It's always darkest before daylight savings time. Don't bite the hand that looks dirty. You can't teach an old dog new math. The pen is mightier than the pigs. An idle mind is the best way to relax. A penny saved is not much. And this one's my favorite. A miss is as good as a mister. Children should be seen and not spanked or grounded. Well, after we become Christians, we also start to think differently. The longer we're Christians, the harder it is for us to relate to the perspective of the unchurched people who are all around us. Well, Jonah had lost his focus on the unbelievers outside Israel. He was intent on saving Israel, his native land, while God was intent on saving Nineveh, which were their arch enemies, if you recall from the earlier part of chapter 1. So a group of unbelieving sailors was caught in the middle because Jonah, in the earlier part of chapter 1, God had come and said, I want you to go to Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria, the superpower of the Middle East at that time, who had brutally conquered people all around them. And so the last place Jonah wants to go is to his enemy, not just because it would be threatening to his life, but he was afraid that they might repent. And so he ran the opposite way. Well, a big hurricane came up and, and it was a, a major hurricane because the ship was about to sink. And so we pick up the story in verse 7 of Jonah 1, where they have found Jonah asleep in the bottom of the ship. And so... They now bring him up top, and then here's where we go with verse 7. So the sailors said to each other, Come, 
let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and a lot fell on Jonah. So they ask him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Well, the sailors have a lot of questions about what in the world is going on. Their lives depend on finding the answer to these questions, to discover the source of their problem. You see, the world back in the 8th century BC believed in a direct connection between natural events and human actions. So they cast lots, kind of a throwing of dice, so to speak, to find out who is responsible. And God arranges for the lot to fall on Jonah. So the sailors barrage Jonah with questions. They want to be sure they've got the right person so they can take whatever action needs to be taken. They ask about Jonah's occupation to see maybe he's done something to make the gods angry. Or perhaps Jonah's nationality will reveal which God is angry. Well, Jonah, in answering, uses not only the creator name of God, Elohim, but also God's covenant name with Israel, Yahweh. Now, these unbelieving sailors, they're desperately seeking after a God that they don't even know. So while Jonah, who knows the true God and why he sent this hurricane, he just kind of seems detached in his response. And yet, at the same time, it's like he's proud. I am, you know, a prophet of the Lord God. And yet, here he is running from that Lord God. So all these questions, all of these, we got to know what's going on. God is going to reveal himself not only to Jonah, but also to the sailors. So on your outline, if you're following along, as seekers are looking for God, step one is often discovering God involves questions. They have all kinds of questions. They'll have a lot more coming up. But discovering God involves some questioning, some finding out what does this mean? How does this work? And so that's something that that we want to be a part of is helping to answer questions. Well, there was a profane mountain biker named Missy Giove, and she, some years ago, was the queen of extreme sports. She was fearless as she raced down the mountain biking mountain over rocks and stumps and and things at 60 miles an hour. She was described as crude, brassy, deliberately offensive, and they said she even looked extreme. She had a silver ring in her nose, weird tattoos all around her ankles, wild hair, and this necklace that she wore from which dangled seashells, bicycle chains, and a dead piranha. Well, Missy once told a reporter who asked her about her life and and her mountain biking, and she, she described this. She said, There were times when I was about to crash into a tree that I was somehow moved around that tree. I didn't do it. Something moved me. That's the power and spirit of the mountain. I always give my praise and thanks to the mountain and give an offering. I kiss the dirt 
wherever I go. I lick it and swallow. You want the mountain on your side? Because it will take care of you. Well, that's not that some folks like Missy who don't worship God worship nothing. It's that they worship anything. And that's where these sailors are. They're seeking after something, anything to save them. So they're quite open now to creator God. See, when seekers are in this questioning phase, some may be at a disinterested stage where they don't even seem and think they're, they're going to have any response or any movement in that direction. And yet some move on into a questioning stage to go, I'd really like to know a little bit more about this thing. I'm not sure I believe it. I'm kind of doubtful and, and skeptical, but they have a, this questioning stage. And then sometimes they move into an exploring faith stage from that disinterested to questioning to exploring. So many seekers will avoid church. They will ask questions to somebody they trust, to somebody that's built a relationship with them. And so if you will take the time to relate to them and and build a safe environment so that they can ask those questions, spiritual questions, then sometimes you can have a great spiritual conversation. So let me ask you, are you willing to invest in that process with a seeker, with some people that God has brought around you that are in your love path, maybe not for very long or maybe for a long time? Are you willing to invest in helping people discover God and discussing, not lecturing, but discussing with questions? Well, let's move on to Jonah chapter 1, verse 10. So it says, Jonah's answer, this terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew that he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. Well, the sea was getting rougher and rougher. And so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Here's what Jonah says, pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Well, these sailors, they have a healthy fear of God. They can hardly believe that Jonah would respond to a God in this way. If you really kind of think about it in this story, the sailors are actually more in tune with a right response to God than Jonah. And so, we kind of see this, this back and forth, this contrast between the person Jonah who's supposed to know and respond rightly to God and these sailors who are pagan, worshiping all kinds of other things in nature or, or whatever. And they really know how more to deal with God than Jonah does. You know, some unsaved folks are like that. They really kind of have a spiritual mindset, even if it isn't toward God. So here's Jonah in contrast, presenting a very negative testimony to these unsaved sailors, wouldn't you think? So what testimony are you presenting and how you're handling things right now in our world? The sailors realize they don't know how to appease this all-powerful God that brought this storm, has control over all of nature. So they are stuck turning to, to Jonah even as the storm gets worse. But God is forcing a decision, and he's really forcing it fairly quickly. These events are moving right along. 
So verse 13 of Jonah chapter 1. Instead, the men, the sailors, did their best to row back to the land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Quite a statement. Well, Jonah's answer has presented this dilemma. I'm running from God, the all-powerful God, the creator God who made this storm. And so they have the dilemma is they have to kind of sit and think, you know, if we throw this guy overboard, it could make things worse. This tremendously powerful God may get even more angry and hold us responsible for the death of his prophet. So the sailors try to row back to land. They want to offload their Jonah problem. And the sailors' motive probably has more to do with fear than it does with mercy. See, God has their attention. And finally, the sailors have to make a choice because their options have run out. So, you know, you have to ask yourself when you look at what is Jonah thinking? Is, is this Jonah's ultimate way of avoiding God's plan? Just drown me, let me die, throw me overboard. See, Jonah could have thrown himself on the deck and begged for God's mercy, agreed to go to Nineveh, and then interceded to God on behalf of the sailors. But he's so fixed in his position of protecting his native land at any cost that he does not do this. It's going to be the next chapter that God's going to have to help make him willing and help him see who he is and who God is. So these sailors, they're in a position of begging God to spare them. And they're at the same time acknowledging that God is sovereign. So notice how their knowledge and their respect for God has grown in such a short time. I guess storms will do that, won't it? In their struggles, they are learning more of who God is, and God is revealing himself in their struggles to them. So through their struggles, God says, this is who I am, because God will reveal himself in the struggles, even in a seeker's life as well as in our own. So could we help a seeker frame it that way to say that maybe your life struggles is God wanting to get your attention. God trying to say, here I am, pay attention. You know, I want to have a relationship with you. So could we help a seeker who is in a struggling situation to look at things a little bit different? And that's seeker step number two. Reaching for God involves struggle. It involves discovering God, involves questioning, but now reaching for God involves struggle. So I want to show you a man on the street and woman on the street type of interview in answering in New York City, who is Jesus? Historical figure? I don't know. I think he was just a person. I don't know. Just a normal person like us. He was a selfless person. I have no clue. He was a man. I think he was marketing genius because he got people to believe him. I don't. I don't think he's the son of God. I don't believe that at all. If David Copperfield was in the day of Jesus, he would be Jesus. I'm 
pretty sure he existed. Like, I'm not going to say that he didn't exist. He was God's son, but so was Gandhi, and so was Muhammad, and so was, you know, we're all God's children. Jesus is someone I pray to. Well, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, um, and he, to me, is the like symbol of just ultimate forgiveness and ultimate love. He's sort of that like constant figure in my life. Jesus is also Isa in Arabic and he was a messenger as well. He was just extremely enlightened like religiously and morally. Was somebody that um, just tried to um, impart wisdom on others and um, make the world a better place. I think he saw something that a lot of people didn't see and still don't see in others and I, I think that's just a lot of love and and hope jesus sort of seemed like an ominous uh figure you know he just he, he was god and it was hard to relate to him but i think as i've grown in my faith a lot i've really started to see jesus as my closest friend well there are varying degrees of understanding who jesus is Researcher George Barna has found that, that many unchurched people have very negative experiences with the church along the way through their life. And surveys that, that George Barna and his group took said people say they don't attend church, and here were some of the leading reasons. They say church is unfriendly. Church is boring and irrelevant. Church is a guilt trip. And they only want your money, or, you know, I'm just too busy. I guess my question would be then, can we, as people who follow Jesus Christ, can we change the narrative of how people experience church? And at the same time, say, stay true to the message of who Jesus is. Is that something you see yourself doing? helping people see church through some different experiences that you might help provide. You see, many seekers first need a relationship of trust with a believer who ministers to them in the midst of their struggles and will point them to God. So your relationship with them can give them a safe place to explore, to ask those questions without judging and con condemning them. So we need to also, maybe, as we're thinking through how do we change that narrative of how uh, people experience church from the outside that haven't been in church much, we maybe we need to differentiate what are our preferences versus what is Jesus? What is the person of Jesus? Who is he? And what is really our own cultural and experiential desires and preferences? You know, I have told the story before about this woman in a, in a church, and we had, in this church, we had started a contemporary service. It would been uh, one service at 11 with choir and, and organ and piano, but we started a contemporary service at the earlier point. I think it was at 9.30. And so in doing that, not only was there a contemporary band, but we decided to put a music lectern instead of the pulpit. So the pulpit was moved over to the side, but just for the contemporary service, not for the traditional service. Well, this woman who went to the traditional service was outraged. And her comment was, well, if people are gonna come to church, they're just gonna have to get used to Christian things. You know, somehow Jesus was able to proclaim the kingdom of God without a pulpit. Not using a pulpit, does not equal compromising 
the gospel. So you might say, well, I would never say something like that. That wouldn't be my attitude. But maybe we have some other things. Maybe we have other attitudes like this, that I want church to have my things for me. And these are my preferential things, not critical things about worshiping God and keeping the message of who Jesus is, who God is, and who we are in relation to God. But can we discern what our preferences that can be adjusted and what is the message and core values that must remain unchanged? So seekers are struggling as they try to find God, as they try to reach for God. Can we help them? Can we help them without bringing too much of our own stuff to try to to impose on them? I always remember when I was in Eastern Europe and I would go out into the streets and and you'd walk around and they they even had us uh, talking with different people in different villages all over Ukraine, but also this is in Romania. And I noticed that the church people, they dress very conservative. Women had head coverings and and scarves and and dresses with uh, arms completely covered. And you went out into the, the culture and the people were much more risquely dressed and uh, there, there was a completely different look and clothing, and you wondered how are those people going to transition into the church if they think I have to dress and look like they do. So what are our cultural preferential kinds of things that we think are so critical, and yet they really aren't the gospel? Can we just say, what's the core message of who Jesus is and who God is and how we come to have to have faith in God and not works? Can we keep the message and our core values without bringing so much of our own stuff in it that we taint the gospel? Well, something to think about. Okay, chapter 1 of Jonah, verse 15. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. So as soon as Jonah is like sinking down to the bottom of the ocean, the sea suddenly becomes calm. The sailors responded pretty much like the disciples would respond 800 years later when Jesus stilled the storm. They're in awe. So these sailors offer a sacrifice and make vows for the future as they learn of God's power and justice and compassion. You see, God cared for the souls of these Phoenician sailors. They weren't like, you're just side players unimportant in this story. God truly cares for them, and they got a huge witness and testimony of who God is. I got to think a bunch of these sailors not only learned who God was, but they responded, and they started to follow him. I'd like to think it happened that way. What about you? So our third point on our outline, finding God involves commitment. In his book, Inside the Mind of Unchurched Harry and Mary, Lee Strobel, who was once an outspoken atheist and hard-boiled journalist and became a Christian, and then he has put together a lot of evangelistic videos, and so one of the books he wrote, Inside the mind of unchurched Harry and Mary, he offered a composite portrait of a typical unchurched middle-class person. So here's nine things that 
he said about them in his book. He says, number one, these unchurched folks are interested in God, but not in the church. He says, 88% pray, but they don't see church as relevant to their life, like Barna had found. Number two, these unchurched folks hold an adaptable morality. 69% say there are no absolute moral standards and they practice situation ethics. In Lee Strobel's uh, surveys and talking, he said half said they were willing to steal or lie or cheat on their spouse. So they hold to an adaptable morality. Number three, they are biblically uninformed and confused half could not accurately explain why we celebrate Easter. Number four, they have spiritual questions, but they're shy about asking. They don't want to appear foolish. Number five, they want reasons for values more than rules. They want to know what's the wisdom behind the rule. Number six, practicality and experience matter more than truth kind of a companion to number two with that adaptable morality. But practicality and experience, that matters more than truth. So each person creates their own truth. Their experience becomes the way they find truth, which is a hallmark of a postmodern society, that truth is relative to a person or a setting or a situation. Number seven, they are looking for meaningful relationships. Well, that's good news. You see, transience, which is what our society has become in in how we move about and have cars and transportation and airplanes that, but the more we can move around, the more isolated we become because we're not invested in our local neighborhoods. Often the only time we see our neighbors is when we're taking our trash bin out to the curb and we greet them and wave at them, but we really don't know them. Even our houses have been designed for individual people. Kitchens are now bigger and living rooms are smaller because we spend more time in our kitchens. And social media has not helped. You think, wow, we can text and do video chats and Instagram pictures and all, but it actually people have drawn more apart. As the more high tech, the less touch there is. So high tech is not high touch. So number eight, they want quality spiritual training for their kids. 73% want training for their kids, yet they have no plans to join the church. They just want their kids to hear something that might, you know, be something for them to consider and think about, but they don't really think they're going to be joining the church now that they have kids. But 73% want their kids to have some kind of spiritual training. Number nine. They will join a cause more than joining an organization. 60% said they would devote two weeks to help with a social problem. That's pretty impressive. And in fact, some of these events that churches have or or organizations that are Christian have in, in helping feed the hungry and build houses or whatever it might be, those things, those times can really be a, a place where these seekers rub against the Christians and build some relationships and say, hey, they're not so bad after all. So the question, can we engage these seekers? Can we engage in conversations during that time? 
Right now, that conversation might be six feet apart with a neighbor, or it might be in a phone call to encourage someone who's home alone and and see if they need help. You know, Verizon said last week in in a report that it's now handling more than double the number of wireless calls every day than are made on Mother's Day, which is the busiest calling day of the year. So we're on our phones a lot during this coronavirus crisis. So people are hungry. They want connection. They want to touch people, at least in voice. Another option, if you have a little bit more technology, is you can send a text to someone and tell them you miss them. Ask how they're doing. Stay in touch. Or you can even plan a face-to-face video chat. Zoom Video Group has this chat app in which You can sit and be in a group and have prayer. And churches have been using this and have had Zoom meetings. Uh, Maybe uh, it can be one-on-one. It can be a group meeting. Uh, And and I've seen some church have, you know, all the little squares where they're Zooming and they're praying together. Or they've had Zoom Bible studies. Karen, who's with Bible Study Fellowship, on Thursdays, she had her Zoom meeting this past Thursday. And some are doing Zoom support groups because there's a lot of hurting, struggling people for various reasons. And, of course, much more. You see, God is helping us during this time where we haven't been able to meet as a church to redefine church. Across the nation, there are some incredible stories of how God is doing things. So while the press picks up on a few highly publicized churches who are defying the stay-at-home orders, a huge multitude of other churches, they're finding new ways to connect. They're seeing an increase in body life, an increase as they minister to one another and have been more connected than they were before. Who would have thought it? But God is using this crisis in amazing ways. And so can we ride the wave that God is creating to connect with our neighbors, to connect better with each other, to build community in the church, as well as find new and different ways to reach out that still don't involve defying what the government has told us to do. Churches are finding ways, and I'm encouraged by that. Well, let me close with a fable about some scientists who developed a fish that could live outside of water. They bred and crossbred until they produced a fish that could exist out of water. Remember, this is a fable. But the project director, he suspected, well, this fish really has a secret longing for water. And he wouldn't be satisfied until they could change the fish's very desires. So they retrained until they produced a fish that would rather die than get wet. Even humidity filled this new fish with dread. And then one day, the fish accidentally fell into a pond, and it sank to the bottom, gills clamped shut, afraid that if it moved, it would become more wet. Every instinct in this fish that had been trained said, don't breathe. And yet, finally, the fish had to open its gills and breathe. And then it breathed again. And then it flicked its fin. It breathed a third time and wiggled with delight and then darted away. The fish had discovered water. A new world was opened. See, the world has conditioned people to reject God. And so they avoid God. 
Spiritually, though, we are like a fish out of water. When we discover our creator, we come to understand who we really are and gain a freedom in life we never had. So just like the fish in the fable discovering water, we can discover life as we discover God. So let me ask you a few closing questions. Are you willing to invest yourself in your circle of influence to help them discover the freedom they have missed all these years? Will you pray for your friend? Will you care for your friend to demonstrate the love of Jesus? Will you share in some spiritual conversations as your friend questions and struggles and hopefully commits to seek God in the Holy Spirit's time? Prayer, care, share as we reach out to those who are seeking. So are you in board, on board to engage seekers? Are you on board to use this time to not only seek God and let him speak into your heart, but reach out to other people? Because remember, we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength, but also love our neighbor as ourself. That's the one-two punch of the Christian message. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we have somebody that didn't do so well, a prophet, someone that you spoke directly to to bring a message, and yet they didn't trust you. They ran the other way, and you sent a storm because you were not going to let them go. You were not going to let them go. You were not going to let the sailors go. And you were not going to let Nineveh, their arch enemy of Israel, you were not going to let them go either. And that's the story coming up in chapter 3. But for now, Lord, let us and give, uh, to have a heart and give us a heart for seekers. Let us understand what are their needs. How could we minister to them? But first, Lord, create in us a heart that's willing, that doesn't just say, well, let's just stay safe in our own house. And someday when we start to have church again, safe in our, in our church, build a little fortress around and not let people with all these big problems come in who are different and don't act the way we think they should. Just change our hearts, God, to love those people, to see them through the eyes of Jesus and love them like you do. And then may we find those ways to build a relationship and reach out to them as they ask questions, as they have struggles to help them see what those struggles might be pointing them to God. And at last, Lord, until hopefully they commit to you, may we be with them and help them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.